and welcome to episode 5 of Behind the Drawbridge, the podcast from Castle Cameras. My name's Graham and I'm on my own this week. Uh, Co-host Rob is uh, otherwise engaged, (laughs) but this week I thought I would bring you uh, an interview I did the other night with uh, Chris Fallows. Now Chris Fallows, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a world-recognised, well-esteemed wildlife photographer. Uh, and videographer he does a lot of work with sharks um and he is uh he's he's been involved with discovery channels shark week and uh planet earth and things like that uh so he's he's a very uh well regarded uh practitioner in this area uh he does some beautiful fine art work with uh the the sharks and some uh other animals including elephants in africa uh so yes i interviewed chris as part of uh canon camera store week it was a great interview with a, with a lot of good images and a lot of good uh, chat with Chris. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to share uh, that with uh, all of our podcast audience too. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Uh, you should be able to pick up the images or the video from wherever you catch your podcast. Um, but if not, you can head over to our Facebook page, uh, which is uh, uh, facebook.com forward slash Castle Cameras. Uh, look in the live video section and you will find the, uh, the video with Chris himself but uh do enjoy the interview and as ever if you've got any questions email us uh podcast at castlecameras.co.uk uh, i'm graham enjoy the interview and speak to you next time cheers so uh good evening ladies and gentlemen uh it is uh it is my honor to be uh kicking off uh canon camera store week in the uk with uh none other than the esteemed wildlife photographer and canon ambassador mr chris fallows uh nice to see you chris how you doing all good graham thank you very much for that that lovely uh introduction and it's fantastic to be able to to chat to your your guests tonight and uh, really looking forward to the evening Thanks, Chris. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we've got an amazing uh, kind of uh, set of photographs. Uh, I've been uh, lucky enough to have a look through these before we've uh, we started, and there's some amazing work here. So, uh, everyone that's watching tonight is is in for a real treat. So, uh, so yeah, should, should we get underway, Chris? Absolutely. So this evening, I've, I've um, cherry picked a couple of my favourite images that you and I can have a, a, a chat about, and it's got a strong marine slant to it, obviously. Um, bearing in, in mind that uh, for the most part of the last 30 years, I've focused very heavily on, on marine uh, wildlife. Although each year I probably spend around uh, about 100 to 150 days in the bush. So when I'm not at sea, our other great passion is, is the terrestrial side of things. And obviously living in Africa, we've got an abundance of opportunities. So I'll, I'll chat a little bit about that side of things towards the end of the show. But I think um, for the beginning, we'll, we'll start with how I really began, and, and that is with sharks. And um, the first image I'm going to share with you is, is really an, an image that, uh, funny enough, I took this image just a short while ago. And for me, it, it encapsulates what the great white shark is all about. You know, for, let's say, 95% of this animal's life, it spends its time cruising around the open ocean, caught between being an animal trying to conserve energy and an animal that's obviously a very, very capable super predator. And for me, this this image really just symbolizes that beautiful side of of this incredible creature. Um, I've been very lucky to spend a a significant amount of time in the water with them outside of cages. 
and you really get to see you know the, the, a different side to this animal an animal that for the most part is is not all that interested in us is just there to go about what it's evolved to do and that's to find the the prey that it, it's used to and for me from a photographic point of view i try and always show the, the all the elements to my subjects but particularly particularly the beautiful side of them and uh, this image you know really is for me one of those those sorts of scenes where the shark almost looks like it's it's floating in the air rather than actually the ocean yeah i mean that still background really uh, does lend itself and and that almost does look like a cloud in the top middle there <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah flying shark but i'm sure you've actually got some uh, some real flying sharks to uh, show us uh, shortly <laughs> Absolutely. So this, yeah, as as I was saying, this image really, you know, encapsulates that the the predator during the quieter times. But when you spend time with these animals, you realise, you know, just the the incredible capabilities. And and right now, I'm at the stage where my photography has progressed through, you know, all all the different, I guess, facets that you would expect from initially being a a young photographer with a camera in hand that's trying to snap anything I can find, to then focusing on on portraits and close-ups of the animals, eventually trying to capture more of the essence of the environment the animals live in, and now, you know, focusing heavily on, on the fine art side of things. And this particular image really, to me, is a combination of all of those things. You know, it's a it's an attitude of the animal that is almost like a coiled spring. It's, it's poised to go. And this particular shot was taken on the sea floor in New Zealand at a place called Stewart Island. It's an incredibly inhospitable environment down there. It's usually very cold. It's beset with big storms for much of the year. And when you're on the, the sea floor, you know, exposed with these huge sharks around you, you do feel very vulnerable. And it's it's almost a, a, a beautiful feeling, that vulnerability, because you also feel very humbled that these animals allow you in their presence. But on this particular occasion, I've been watching this large shark around about four feet or 13 foot in length, four meters or 13 foot in length. And she had been cruising around me very cautiously. And suddenly a seal came into the, the area where we were working. And from being incredibly relaxed, in an instant, she went to this tensed up predator, watching the surface and ready to launch. And it was just a beautiful thing to see how this creature uses all its senses to assimilate data and then make a decision. And, um, you know, just an, an image like this just shows in a beautiful way all the capabilities of that animal. And then, you know, the, the sight I think that um, many people see of the great white shark is, is of this apex predator in full hunting mode. And this was really an image that, set my photographic career on it on its on its path i took this photo in in 2001 and as a young photographer back then you know it was an an image that you if you had said to me describe the ultimate great white shark photo i i guess this would have been it and i i never forget the day i took this because this was still shot on slide you know in those days we were shooting Provia, and um i knew in that instant because a breach lasts often less than a second, but your mind registers what you've seen. And, you know, you know if it's a very special moment. And I remember taking the, the sequence and I, I shot it with a, a Canon EOS 1V, which 
I think to this day might still be my favorite camera of all time. <laughs> and uh, I took the slide to a studio in Cape Town that did the processing for us. And I said, guys, listen, I think I've got something really, really decent here. And please be extremely careful with this roll of film. And I spent an agonizing weekend wondering if I'd actually got the image. And I walked into the lab on that following Monday morning and everybody was clapping. And I knew I must have done something all right. But um, when I got the, the, the strip of film back, I put that big heavy loop we used to use. And I looked and the first frame in the sequence was soft. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you idiot. You, you've messed the whole thing up. And it was an incredibly powerful shot that was buggered. And then the second shot was this one that was tack sharp. And, um, yeah, I've, I've missed many others since then. But fortunately for me, I, I managed to nail that one. And that was really my, I, I guess, my, my image that launched my career for me. It's really a once-in-a-lifetime shot, Chris. It's just uh, it is an incredible uh shot and and the fact that you shot it on slide film as well makes it uh even more impressive uh, uh what year was this chris that you took this? that was it that was way back in 2001 i still remember it was uh it was in in june of 2001 i can still remember exactly where it took place and and that that amazing high that i felt you know afterwards see i, I every year spend I'm not exaggerating when I say probably thousands of hours staring into a little viewfinder waiting for a split second of action. And it's literally, if you scratch your nose or you look away, that's generally when it happens. So yeah, you can spend day after day after day looking at nothing. And then you have this, this one second of, of needing to, to be sharp. And uh, yeah, many is the time that an errant nose pick or scratch of the ear has led to a, a lot of, uh, a lot of frustration, but in this case, it was all good. This it ties into a question, actually, we've just had from uh, uh, Tazar. Sorry if I've got your name wrong there, but uh, she, she asked, uh, how, how do you predict uh, a jumping shark uh, to photograph? I guess, is it a case of waiting uh, and just being in the right place at the right time? Is it- yeah, so there are two ways we do it. Um, one is by learning and anticipating wildlife behavior. And I'll elaborate a bit more on it with this slide. And then the other one was we used to do a lot of research with great whites where we were trying to see how these animals hunted and the techniques they used. And we used to use decoys. And um, when you pull a decoy behind the boat, you've obviously got a fixed focal point where you, you can focus on, but you've got absolutely no idea when you might get to see the action. So you've got, you've got the, you, let's put it this way. You've got the, the playing field where you know the players should come and play on. But uh, exactly when they're going to run into the stadium, that, that's the, the mystery that remains. So it's a case of never looking away, just focusing on that decoy at all times and then hoping, hoping you, you have the reflexes to, to get it right. And the interesting thing is over the course of 30 years of, of doing this, when I was younger, um, the reflexes were a lot quicker. And fortunately, now the, the technology is kind of caught up with things a little bit. So it, <laughs> it compensates for that a tiny bit. But uh, yeah, it's, a, it's one way of showing that you are getting older is when you shoot this very, very fast action. This, and, uh, this, sorry, sorry, go Chris. ahead, Yeah, we've just got another question as well uh, from Sarah Abbott. And she's just asking how, how close do you actually get to the sharks um, to, to get these kind of shots? So... Typically, we work from about 20 meters away when we, we're shooting the, the decoys. And then also in recent times, I've 
I've developed a whole series of different contraptions and crafts, some of which I lie on, some of which I tow behind the boat. They can put me sometimes no more than six feet away from the breaching Great Whites. And it's an, it's an incredibly exhilarating moment when that sometimes 2,000 or 2,500 pound shark comes flying out, you know, six feet away from you. And it's almost like a golfer who gets the yips with your camera and you tell yourself, don't do it, don't do it. But the moment that shark jumps, you get that instinctive little yip. Um, so it, it varies in, in distance that we work. And then when we're working with natural predation, so the sharks hunting the seals, I'm always very mindful of the fact that it's it's not just me trying to get an amazing photograph. It's more a case of I'm privileged to be watching two incredible animals engaged in, in a life or death battle. So we, we always try and stay a respectful distance away, usually about 50 meters or so, where we don't alter the, the, the outcome either way. So, you know, we, we don't want to bias the predator or the prey. And what's amazing is after uh, recording more than 10,500 predatory events over the last 25 years or so at Seal Island, the success rate of the great whites is 49.6%. So there's almost this perfect balance between predator and prey. And for me, this image really um, encapsulates, I, I think, uh, the, the end of a learning process. And that learning process is getting to know my subjects. Um, technically, I, I will always have a lot more to learn about my cameras and, and it's, you know, it's a, a never ending process. But my privilege and my strength has been to spend a, a lot of time in the field. And by spending a lot of time around the animals, I learn what they're most likely to do, where I'm most likely to position myself a, a, ahead of what I perceive to be coming. And in that way, you know, I optimize my chances of essentially being in the right place at the right time. And in the case of behavior like this, it's, it's, a, it's really about identifying which individual seal is most likely to fall prey to the sharks, tracking with that animal at a respectful distance, predicting, and bearing in mind seals don't just swim on the surface. They go under the surface, come up to breathe, and go under. So the prey you're tracking with essentially is, for half the time, also invisible. But by counting the, the intervals between porpoises, you can predict where they come up, and then most importantly, you've got a predator that you also can't see. So <laughs> you're really working with an invisible quarry all the time. But by understanding the seal behavior, you can best predict where that seal is going to come up. And then by looking at seal behavior in an instant where you get a change in direction or a slightly different attitude to the animal's uh, trajectory or porpoising direction, you then will often hit the trigger before the shark's even broken the surface. And that gives you sometimes a, a, an early warning or opportunity to capture the image. And I think most importantly, it's, it's also taught me a huge respect for both predator and prey. You know, um, as I said earlier, these animals are out there fighting for their life. And I am just a spectator to that drama and I need to respect it at all times. And in this particular case, we were, this was actually, we were filming Planet Earth at the time. And uh, I shot this image of, of this young seal that's using its flippers to push, push it out of the great white shark's mouth. It's, it's literally balancing on a knife's edge and um, just goes to show how fine the margin is between 
surviving and dying out there, getting away or getting a meal. And um, that, in essence, is what, you know, these, these life and death battles teach us on a daily basis. It was truly an incredible thing to to, to be able to witness, and uh, yeah, you like you say, you must feel very privileged, and uh, it's very interesting to see that nature in, in balance, sort of playing out in real time, right in front of you. You know, this this fifty fifty result, and uh, yeah, it's it's an incredible thing. Um, uh, just got a quick question uh, from Melinda Hudson. She said, "You said Seal Island. Is, is that Seal Island off of Hoots Bay?" It's Seal Island in False Bay. So Seal Island in False Bay is about, as a crow flies, about uh, 35 kilometres from Cape Town. And we launch out of an old British naval harbour called Simonstown. And then it's about a 25-minute ride to the island. And what's what's unique and amazing about Seal Island in False Bay is that it lies on the doorstep of a city of 4 million people. So you have this unbelievable behavior taking place and just a stone's throw away is a, 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 a large city. So, yeah, truly incredible. Hmm. But I think, um, you know, one of the other amazing aspects of working with the great white sharks is, is exposure to all forms of marine wildlife. And I learned from a very young age that, you know, nothing in the ocean works independent of anything else everything is interrelated it's all an ecosystem and one is dependent on the other and i i developed a huge appreciation of all forms of of sharks and, and marine life out there and we also work a lot offshore so we go out uh, to the continental shelf sometimes 60 or 70 kilometers offshore to water that's around about uh seven eight thousand feet deep and out there, I'm looking for various other species of shark. And, and one of the things I love about photographing in the open ocean is you usually have very clear water. And especially early mid-morning or, or mid-afternoon, late afternoon, you get these beautiful dappled rays of light that come cascading through. And because I was never uh, schooled in photography, I never went to a college or anything like that, I kind of... I uh, was self-taught and I had some amazing mentors along the way that gave me a few tips. I did things that unbeknownst to me were against the rules. So I, I loved from a young age shooting into the light. And uh, I didn't always appreciate the rule of thirds and all sorts of things like that, um, which I, I have learned, by the way, over the years. But I still love shooting into the light and I still go out there trying to find these incredible creatures. This is a, the mako shark, the fastest shark in the ocean, and arguably one of the most perfectly designed creatures on the planet that I, I think looks a lot like a, a Mercedes Formula One car with a, those incredible colors and um, fantastic design. So, you know, the great white sharks really were the building block for me to have an introduction to all these other animals. and. When you're spending huge amounts of time out in the open ocean, you start seeing other creatures. And the magnitude of things is so great that you don't always fully comprehend the scale of what you're seeing. Those birds you're seeing there have got a wingspan of 10 or 12 feet in length. Um, They can circumnavigate the globe in less than a month. In many cases, they'll travel up to 4,000 kilometers on a single feeding sortie to bring food home for their chicks. And you also start learning things 
you know, that they critically threatened. 19 of the 23 species of albatross uh, face extinction or extremely vulnerable. And um, it's only by being out there that you, you realize just how remarkable these animals are. Uh, those waves you're seeing there are, are four or five meters high. Uh, that's down in the Southern Ocean near an island called South Georgia. And these animals revel in the most violent latitudes on the planet that, that humans struggle in. And it's just testimony to their incredible ability. That's an incredible photo, Chris. And the 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 the, uh, the tones in in the in the ocean there. I mean, if you look at it abstractly, it almost looks like a like a tree trunk or something. It's just it's such an incredible. You know, you can really feel the movement and and the the depth and the trough and and the size of the waves there. It's such a great picture. Thank you, Graham. I appreciate that. And you know, it's it's, it's amazing those birds out there that um, they've got a. Uh, a technique of flying called dynamic soaring, where they basically just run down a, a wave and then get catapulted up the next approaching crest. And when they fly using dynamic soaring, they can achieve speeds of well over 100 kilometers an hour. But they only use twice the amount of energy to fly as they do to sit on a nest. So it just really goes to show, you know, how amazingly adapted they are to those wild latitudes and this gives you a, a little bit of a better idea of just to, you know how how big these birds are that's a, a snowy wandering albatross i was privileged along with um another uh photographer that many of you'll know in the uk david tippling to spend uh, a month on south georgia for the once every decade albatross count and these birds in many cases don't see people for years. And we were lucky enough to go onto the island to count the, the, the birds and the chicks and the, and the eggs. And I, I never forget the, these incredible birds, some of which had a wingspan of, you know, 12 foot in length, 3.6 meters. And they would come over to me completely uh, unaware, I guess, of the fact that I was a human and it was, it was essentially us that, that's killing their species. But trustingly, come over to us and in these amazing courtship dances, when they saw a female coming, they would spread these huge glider-like wings. And sometimes I was sitting under this bird's wing and I'll never forget on one occasion, I was shooting with a wide angle and this, this young bird came up to me, saw the lens and gently came and touched the tip of the lens and gently pecked it like this. And I, I, thought, I thought to myself, you know, what an amazing experience and, and what are we doing to these creatures? You know, they, they are just so incredible and it's, it's such an, an amazing privilege to have them on our planet. But that was the, the wandering albatross on South Georgia Island. And uh, you can see they're engaged in a, in a behavior called bull clacking where they do this crazy clack, 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 clack with their bulls and then go into this wow sort of noise. And it's a real sensory experience. It's, it's absolutely fantastic to sit with them. And, you know, talking of, of sensory experiences, this is, if you said to me, I've got one day left to live, where would it be from a wildlife point of view on this planet? I would have to say on this stretch of beach called St. Andrew's Bay on South Georgia Island, it's, it's probably if not the greatest, one of the greatest concentrations of wildlife to be seen anywhere. They're, 
There are well over half a million king penguins, and each king penguin stands nearly three feet tall. There are thousands and thousands of southern elephant seals, and a full-grown male southern elephant seal can weigh eight or 9,000 pounds. There are tens of thousands of Antarctic fur seals, a couple of leopard seals, and a whole host of other bird species all crammed into this beach that has <coughs> uh, glaciers terminating into the sea. And I was lucky enough to spend several days on this beach and on many occasions on my own, sometimes right into the, the early part of the night and just watching the spectacle in front of my eyes. And each one of those little birds sounds like a, a tiny Formula One car revving its engine. So you can imagine half a million Formula One cars going wow, 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 wow at one time and just this hustle and bustle. It's almost like New Delhi Station with just people going everywhere and chaotic, well, organized chaos. That's what it's like to be on that beach. And you couple it with um, early morning light kissing that dawn mist. It's just a, a moment I'll, I'll certainly never forget. It is magical. Magical. So dolphins are, are species that um, everybody, I think, has got an attraction towards. We're very lucky where we work in False Bay. Our, our, our company sees a, a lot of dolphins on a very regular basis. And for me, the, the challenge was always to try and, I think, combine getting an image that showed these animals underwater and at the same time showed them, you know, on a... a, a, a top of the surface element and photographically it's a very challenging image it's it's an image that you kind of i guess slowly start getting right through a lot of trial and error when you look like look at an image like that there are a lot of components that need to come together first most importantly you need a large school of dolphins then they need to be very comfortable with the presence of the vessel unfortunately the species which are common dolphins will often come up to a boat and bow ride, but you've got to approach them in a very uh, non-threatening way and let them become comfortable with you. Then you have to have perfectly, and I mean perfectly calm conditions. You can't have the slightest ruffle on the surface because it'll distort their shapes. Then you have to get right next to the group, close enough to the front of the group that you have unbroken water. And then you have to use a graduated filter to bring down the harsh tones of a bright sky and balance it with a dark sea. So it's an image that, that takes a, a, lot of, um, a lot of trial and error. It really needs great conditions. And then um, bringing together a couple of the things that you learn over the years. So that was a, an image that took a lot of, a lot of time to, to actually uh, get right at the end of the day. Very complex shot, absolutely. And uh, like you say, there's many facets to balance there. It's not just wildlife photography, it's landscape photography all at the same time. It's it's quite a, it's a very technically challenging shot and uh, yeah, very well executed in this case. Thanks, Graham. Um, yeah, I can't tell you how, how many times I've cursed a dolphin that suddenly has broken the surface right next to the, the boat and uh, <laughs> destroyed the whole essence of the image. Oh, unhelpful. So, so, some, oh, sorry, just a quick question from someone yes. uh, else again, Chris, if, you, if that's okay. Um, sure. The, 
they, they, Sandy Stockwell, she asks, do you only shoot in black and white? And uh, what is your rationale for this? Um, okay, so now as a fine art photographer, I'm specializing in black and white images, producing limited edition collections, and, and they are all black and white. Um, I'll elaborate on that a little bit towards the, the end of the talk a bit more. Um, I also have a collection called Shades, and with my Shades collection, I go to particular locations that offer specific colors and a look to the image. So I like to always try and create an artistic element to my imagery. And as such, I'm, when I'm shooting black and white, um, I'm always looking for mood and texture, always looking for clouds where I can get them. Uh, an ocean surface obviously offers a, a, a lot of texture to it as well. And then specifically iconic subjects are, are what I focus on. With my shades collection, I go to places that, that offer me uh, a washed out sort of feel. So desert landscapes, I look for very uncluttered environments. So my backgrounds are, are very important to the composition of my images. And I, I, I seek out specific locations for that. So by way of example, Itosha National Park in Namibia, which has got a, a very, very chalky sort of sky, especially during the, the, late, uh, the late winter months where it's right at the end of the dry season. And you get this dust in the air and it's very harsh and it's very elemental. Um, a place like Amboseli, we have a dry caked earth, um, bland backgrounds, but just really allow the subject to pop out without much distraction. So my black and white focus is, is really on iconic subjects and um, creating a limited edition uh, set of artworks like that. And then the, the color ones are, as I say, tailored towards um, those softer sort of pastel shades of the washed out sort of feel. Thanks, Chris. So... I guess an image that eluded me for many, many years was, um, as as crazy as this would sound, is, was a whale tail. We see whales on virtually every time we go to sea and, you know, sometimes many, many dozens of them. And it's very easy to get a whale tail in itself. But to get a truly great shot of a whale tail is, is extremely difficult where the tail breaks the horizon line you literally feel like you can be under that that animal. Um, to have the animal either going across you or towards you, you need to have a whale that's extremely comfortable in your presence. And to be close enough where you can shoot it with a wide-angle lens is, is something that's not easy at all. And then bring in other elements like a, a pretty calm sea with a powerful sky, and suddenly you have a, a, a lot of different components that, that need to come together. And... Um, this image for me was, I guess, almost as, as close as, as I've come. There is another image we're going to be launching later this year that I also, you know, really, really am very proud of. But this image, you know, I, I feel like I can literally walk under that whale's tail. You, you can see right under that whale's tail, breaks the horizon beautifully. There's a, a lovely wall of water cascading off it. And then, you know, the, the other whale in the distance was... Um, just a, a, a perfect bit of luck. You know, I, I guess, as Gary Player said, the, the more you practice, the luckier you get. And uh, in this particular case, uh, I couldn't have paid that whale better than to, to get it to, to dive exactly as it did. But this particular tale to me is, is just a beautiful celebration of these 
majestic sentient beings before they head down to to the depths and um yeah i i, I love the mood and, and feel of that image no and it's very strong technically as well as you say i mean the way you could read that shot from left to right with the water droplets and then you follow the curve of the whale and as you do so you could see those clouds and and then you finish up on that other whale tail which is you know the angle is parallel to the back of that whale and it's just a yeah <laughs> another once in a lifetime shot chris so uh, yeah congratulations that's a, that's a great shot Thanks, Graham. Yeah, as, as you correctly said, you know, the flow of an image is very important. And where I can, I always try and shoot an image like I read a book. You know, I, I like to think that most people read from left to right. <laughs> and, um, you know, generally I try to shoot that way as well, that the eye flows across a page. So it's not always possible, but that's that's kind of, you know, what I try and do where I can. So the, the breaching great white sharks, I guess, have, have been for me what um, set my career on its path. And um, over the years, the way I shot them changed quite dramatically. In the beginning, you know, people had never really seen this behavior before. I was fortunate enough to discover it in, in 1996 in False Bay. No one had ever seen the photos before. And, and almost instantly, you know, they achieved a, a huge amount of interest all around the world. And from being um, a young guy that was just very passionate about nature and a keen photographer, suddenly to have the likes of the Telegraph and the New York Times and Los Angeles uh, Herald uh, or LA Times and all these newspapers around the world knocking on your, your, your door. In, the, in those days, it was a fax machine that used to ring at all different hours. Um, was a was a real eye opener for me, but I saw the potential, obviously, from from the, the earliest of times to make a career out of this niche. And in those early days, I used to focus on just getting big, powerful images. You know, really bold, in-your-face um, shots of the sharks flying out the water. But over time, I really started focusing more on emotion, trying to bring in other elements like the clouds, and, and then lighting. And um, this image kind of brought all of those together. And then the bird was just, a once again, a, a very, very lucky touch. And even the attitude of that bird's wings are, are great. But this image is part of my, my 11th hour collection. And the 11th hour really is, um, it's a wake-up call and a celebration at the same time. The celebration is of all the wonderful creatures and iconic animals we have on our planet. But the wake-up call is that, in many cases, many of my subjects no longer exist or the behavior doesn't exist anymore. And tragically, this behavior at Seal Island is, is very seldom seen anymore. And that has taken just 25 years from when we first discovered it to nowadays it's, it's almost non-existent. And that is through rampant overfishing of the primary prey species of these sharks, the great whites which are actually smaller sharks, ironically. People always think it's seals, but for the most part of the great white's life, it feeds on smaller sharks. And um, through the overfishing of these smaller sharks, the great whites have now left. And this image is is, is called the final act because like the, the lights on a stage, it's the, the final the final act. This was the last great shot I ever got of a, of a breaching great white at Seal Island. And um, for me, it's very symbolic of how we, we really are losing so much of the wonderful life out there. We need to do whatever we can to to conserve and preserve it. 
I was going to say, Chris, it's a very powerful shot, um, you know, in many ways. Uh, just the majestic nature of the shark flying through the air like that with uh, set up with the clouds. But as you say, quite rightly, I mean, you are uniquely placed to have seen how their behavior has changed over this extended period of time over over quarter of a century. And uh, I was going to ask, I mean, you said it there that, you know, you've, you've noticed the numbers of these great whites dropping. I mean, are they actually dropping or are they just not feeding in that area anymore? Or actually the numbers of these, these amazing creatures are dwindling now. They're definitely dwindling in South Africa, you know, the area where we worked and then further up the coast, Hanspai, at the world's two highest densities of them, and there are virtually none left there. There are two or three locations in South Africa where you can still see them, but their numbers are disappearing. Um, you know, in South Africa, we still have the world's largest state-organized killing machine of great whites anywhere on the planet, and that is the Natal Sharksport nets, which are bather protection nets. But bearing in mind we have around about one shark attack a year, and we're wiping out one of the world's most iconic species that brings over 150,000 tourists to South Africa every year. I think it's in- incredibly short-sighted. You know, we, we live in a, in a country where we have 24,000 murders a year and we don't have a death penalty for, for humans, yet in this case, these animals are, are, are wiped out. So it, it, really is, um, it really is a time for us to have a look in the mirror and, and see what we are doing to this planet and and hopefully learn to coexist. You know, there's there's no better example than than one of your greatest statesmen, Sir David Attenborough. And um, you know, he's obviously in the twilight of, of his life now. And uh, you know, you can really see his at pains to point out what he's seen from when he was a young man mm-hmm. to what is left now, which is really the evolutionary blink of an eye, has changed so dramatically. And um one generation always tells the next what they used to be. And I really hope it's it, there's going to come a time soon where the generation to come will say, you know, we've got more than what my parents had. And we, we really need to make changes. It's as simple as that. But I won't, I won't go on too much on, on that score. Okay. So this, this image for me is, um, is an image I'm particularly proud of. It was taken at a different location in South Africa last year. And uh, it really showed the interest people have in, in sharks and, and particularly flying great whites and fine art, marine fine art around the world. The shot, shot went viral. It was actually on uh, the New York Stock Exchange's building. It was um, seen pretty much everywhere. And for me, it was, a, it was a culmination of, I guess, everything I'd learned and experimented with over the years. It's shot from no more than about eight feet away, it's, it's shot at 20 millimeters. And it really feels as though you can pretty much walk under that great white shark. And there's a lot going on here once again. I, I was trying to bring in that tiny corner of the island where you actually have the seals sitting on it, but the shark did such a good job jumping, it, it completely clips those. But things like these clouds, the, the planning that goes into that, I, I pour over weather reports for days in advance and plan my days at sea, that I have atmosphere when I go out there and looking at calm ocean surfaces and, and trying to get these dramatic angles. And you literally spend thousands of hours waiting for this moment. And my camera, for those of you who are probably wondering how I get this image, my camera is on a, a sled 
it's completely exposed on the front element. So any big splash, any little wave, and I say goodbye to, uh, 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 in this case, it was a 5D Mark IV with, uh, I think I was shooting a 1635 at that time, if I remember correctly. But um, there's a high risk with, with this shot. And um, yeah, you spend a, a lot of nervous moments picturing every single thing that could possibly go wrong. Yeah. But in this case, you know, it, it resulted in an, in an image that um, I guess I'd always dreamed of. And most importantly, rather than showing the, the great white as a vicious man-eater, showed it as an incredibly athletic and capable predator, almost like an a, a Olympic athlete. Chris, just, uh, just going back to the uh, subjects of the settings there, the camera, um, uh, uh, Mandy Foreman asks, um, do you use a flash uh, at all for a bit of fill-in light um, when, when you're taking these shots? Um, and if not, do you use, you know, like a base marker of a shutter speed and an ISO that you always kind of use as a default? Yeah. So I don't, I don't use flash at all. Um, in terms of shutter speed, uh, I'll never shoot breaches at less than a thousandth of a second. Uh, in this case, it's usually a little bit later in the in the morning, so mid-morning. I usually have plenty of light. So I'm looking at an f-stop of usually somewhere from 6.3 to f11. I, I like f8 if I can shoot around about that. And then, obviously, as as low ISO as I can I can possibly get. The most important thing, however, is is depth of field and, and shutter speed here, with shutter speed being the most important of, of those three criteria. Thanks, Chris. And then finally, um, I've spoken a lot about the marine wildlife side of things tonight. The next chat I would love to have with you would be on the terrestrial side of things, being somebody that's privileged to live in Africa and having traveled all around the world. I've, I've taken a lot of what I've learned from the marine side of things and, uh, and applied it to the ocean. And um, this is just an, an amazing example of, of what the autofocus with the, the new R5 can do. This is in a, a little housing that I place on, on the ground ahead of the elephants. And one of the biggest challenges in the past was always that the, the cameras, as you would trip the shutter, that sound of the shutter going off would often give the elephants a fright, as crazy as that sounded. And I don't like in any of my, my images to have a startled look to my subjects. I don't like things charging towards me or trying to bite my camera. That's not what I'm trying to create with my images. And the beauty of this new new camera is that even in, even in the, the mechanical mode, the shutter is so quiet that the elephants don't even pick up on it. And I think that that image really is um, just a, a little bit of a, an idea of, of what the advancement in that form of technology can do. And then um, it's also that the autofocus on the camera without me actually setting it myself just shows how, how capable it is of, of picking up on the right elements of the, of the actual elephants themselves. And, I won't forget taking this image because the whole herd literally walked right over the top of my small box. And um, yeah. I, I pictured just coming back and, and picking up the pieces, but they amazingly aware animals. And even, you know, my little box, it's designed like an elephant turd. They, they managed to skirt and walk around and, and just carried on on their own way. So next time uh, I really look forward to chatting about 
the terrestrial side of things, how I, I choose specific locations to get a specific look for my images. You know, I chatted a little bit early, earlier. One of your, your guests asked about, you know, how I go about choosing locations and um, what with regards to shooting in color or shooting in black and white. For me, this is, you know, a, a, an idea of how I go about my choice of locations for black and whites. I love harsh places. I love telling the story of a survivor, that cracked earth with nothing in the background. You know, it says these elephants have walked a long way, the gathering storm clouds. It's just a an, an emotive sort of image as to the, the incredible survival skills of these creatures. That this this particular dry lake in Amboseli is at parts 20 kilometers long, and these elephants have to cross it, you know every few days to come and drink. So a real example of um, of just what amazing creatures these are and how strong their family bonds are. And I guess, you know, another animal that we, we really need to do our utmost to protect and, and, and make sure that future generations get to see it. Ultimately, creatures like this are the very essence of Africa and without them, it would be a, a far poorer place. So, so Graham, that's just a couple of my favorite images that I, I've really enjoyed sharing this this evening. But I, I would like to to finish on this one, and this one is, you know, a, an image that represents part of my eleventh hour collection, and we we showcased that at the Saatchi Gallery last year, and we'll be doing a, a big exhibition there in October this year, and it'll be great if if anybody listening wants to pop in and come and say hi, but. In my 11th hour collection, I have 12 images. And the first 11 are the 11 hours leading up to the, the, the 12th and final hour. And the 11 images are all black and white works depicting amazing iconic species I've seen. And as I was saying earlier, some of those animal, individual animals or behaviors no longer sadly exist. So it's really a, 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 a message to, you know, this is what's happening. This is what we've lost. But this 12th image is a, is a color image with the colors slowly washing out of it as the time is, is running out. And it's of a magnificent bull elephant standing under an iconic ficus tree, a fig tree in Manapools National Park in Zimbabwe. And it's, it's, it's really a, a symbol of the fact that having been taken just over a year ago, these amazing things are still out there. It's not too late. The sands of time are running out. But if we do everything we can right now, we change our ways and we stand up for, for conserving and, and and looking at greener ways of living together with, with these creatures on our planet, there is still time, there is still hope, and future generations may yet just experience the privileges I and, and others have had. So I want to end on that one, that it's certainly not all doom and gloom out there. There are amazing things to be seen all around the world. And it's just the most wonderful planet that we we share with these amazing and iconic species. And thank you so much for giving me the chance to to chat about my work with your audience. Thank you ever so much, Chris. And uh, I mean, I'm just echoing what Suzanne uh, McGowan's just said in the comments. They, these are very powerful images, and uh, they they certainly kind of make you think. You know, beyond the fact that these are you know these are predators and these are these are wild animals, but you know th these are living 
breathing creatures with with lives and you know we should do all we can to protect them and uh and certainly ensure that they're there for future generations um but i think your work conveys that point beautifully so um yeah thank you for sharing that with us chris it's uh it's been a real privilege to to speak to you this evening thank you graham a privilege the privilege was all mine thank you for the opportunity and uh like we said you know we'd love to to have you back and we can talk uh terrestrial <laughs> uh, creatures as well uh more of the elephants and, and the alike um just a quick question uh, from mandy foreman she asks um just beyond uh she was the one that was asking about your black and white and what why you're shooting black and white yes um she, she also says you know d- um, do you do much pro- post-processing beyond that kind of uh, black and white conversion? Yeah, so I, I tend to do, uh, you know, a fair amount of, of post-processing in that I, I like to get an image to roughly how I would like to look, how I'd like it to look in a in a printed uh, medium at the end. But the final retouching we actually have done by a professional lab in Los Angeles called Bauhaus that are globally renowned as amongst the best at that. So I get it to a certain stage where I'm happy that that's kind of the feel I want for it, but then I really hand it over to the the experts to take it to to the next level for the fine artwork because those those works, we we only sell 12 in in each size. And yeah, at, at the end of the day, my strength is is taking the photographs, getting to know my subjects, capturing unique behavior of these iconic species. But there are people that are far better at, at processing the works than myself. And so it's a combination of, of two. That's, that's really interesting. It's, uh, yeah, not something I've really sort of thought about actually before. But, I mean, that's, uh, like you say, that there's these guys out there that, that do it and, and that's what they do. You know, it could be could be sometimes a better thing to do to hand that kind of thing over. But, uh, yeah, well, um, thank you. And just, you know, lots of people in the comments there, uh, Chris, just thanking you, saying that amazing pictures, very inspiring. And uh, thank you. certainly... Uh, can echo all of those comments so uh thank you thank once you, again chris and uh yeah i think uh i think that's all <laughs> great thank well you. thank you thank you again i look forward to the next time and uh i hope everybody gets a chance to come and see many of these animals for themselves and if any of you have got any questions about where the best places are to photograph whether it's marine life sharks whales dolphins or or lions, elephants, rhinos, whatever the case may be, I've, I've had the, the most incredibly privileged life and experiences with these animals, and I'm only too happy to to share the, the many great places, the pitfalls of some of them, and for any of you where I can help you on, on your journey to having some of these amazing photographic experiences. And um, thank you for, for taking the time out to come and listen to me this evening. What's the best way for people to reach out to you, Chris, if they do want to reach out? The best is probably to to get hold of me either through the, the website, um, which I think you may be able to see down there, chrisfellows.com. Alternatively, they can follow me on on, uh, on Instagram, and um, I'm pretty good at getting back to, to, to most people. My wife also helps a, a, a lot with that. Um, and, yeah. By, by all by all means, either of those ways are, are probably a, a very good way to contact. And they can also just follow the the places and, and expeditions I I, uh, I lead and, and the places we go to through 
through our, uh, our, our um, Instagram uh, handle over there as well. So, Great yeah, stuff. by all means, any questions you may have, uh, I'm only, only too happy to get to as and when I can. That's, that's very generous of you, Chris. Thank you. And um, just a reminder, um, you said you were going to be at the Saatchi Gallery in October. Um, what was the, do you know the dates of that offhand? Um, I think I think we're looking at pro, pro, probably around about the 14th of October. There's going to be a, a, a big exhibition uh, at Saatchi and I'll be exhibiting a couple of my favourite works. So we're going to be launching a couple of new works um, one of one of a, a whale tail. I'm incredibly excited to to share with everybody. A few new shark ones, and um, hopefully a, a, a couple of exciting elephant ones too. So, okay. and most importantly, a couple of messages to go along with them as well. Well, I for one will be there, so uh, we'll, we'll catch up then, Chris. Definitely. <laughs> Sounds good, Graham. Can't wait. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you uh, very much, everyone, for coming along uh, this evening. Uh, as you, it's been an amazing talk, and uh, do get in touch with Chris or, or, or myself. I'm always available to ask questions as well. You can you can email us through uh, through the Cast Cameras uh, page and or, or the contact us information on the website. So. Uh, do uh, check out everything else that's going on with uh, Canon Camera Store Week. Uh, there's other speakers throughout the week uh, with other stores. And uh, later, if you, any of you are local to Bournemouth, we have uh, Raj uh, from Canon uh, coming in for the day. And uh, what that boy has forgotten about cameras is more than all of us will remember put together. So he's uh, he's a very knowledgeable young man. So if you've, if you've got any uh, queries at all uh, about Canon or EOS or the, any of the new R-series stuff, do come in and see Raj, um, book a one-to-one and, uh, yeah, get some, get some free help. Uh, he, he's a great guy. So, uh, thank you once again, everyone. And, uh, take care. Good night. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, Chris. Cheers, Graham. Take care.